0: This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life, from smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
2: More than this, a soul commences a career that will outlast the earth on which it moves.
3: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Theodore Kyler, and it's called The Value of Human Life. It was preached in Brooklyn, New York in the late 1800s.
1: So, life is something we often take for granted. The fact that we are alive right now, breathing, eating, talking to others, it's such an amazing thing. So many people have died before us, right? And there's maybe so many to come after us, we're not sure. But in this razor edge of time, here we are. And what we do in that time matters. In some ways, this actually kind of goes back to the heart of Revive Thoughts. Like, we want to bring history's greatest sermons back to life and bring those old truths that we've forgotten to the present. There's this special moment in time. And again, Revive Thoughts is trying to bring that history back to life. But this person we're going to go over today, there's a little bit, honestly, of irony This person was very famous in his day. He has books. He even wrote an autobiography, and we know next to nothing about his actual life.
3: Yeah, if you were to Google his name, I mean, there is stuff that comes up. We do kind of have some broad overview stuff that it talks about. It talks about him pastoring the largest Presbyterian church in Brooklyn, really, in that time. He wrote over 30 different books, so he was a somewhat accomplished writer, and there's a lot of articles talking about how you know, respected and fantastic of a preacher he was in his day and era. And he stayed busy throughout his whole life. We see, you know, him working in ministry throughout his entire life. But when you try to dive deep into his personal life,
1: you find a lot of just missing pieces to his life. We do a lot of research here. Uh, We try to get different sources, look through things. I jump into little bits of biography. It's just a bunch of stuff that we do to bring you this history section. We couldn't do that with Theodore Kyler. Um, I would say about 90% of what little you're going to get just comes from his autobiography. And the thing is that you know he's the only source on that so whether it's true or not or how exactly it went we only know what he has to say about it and again hardly anybody's written since then um and his autobiography is kind of written in a strange way i know i was skimming through it and most of his autobiography is i'm not even joking like it's literally the first several chapters is just him talking about famous people he knew and his impressions on them and Before you say, well, that sounds a little prideful, in his defense, he lived for 87 years, and I'm not going to lie, he knew a lot of famous people. We're going to get into that list of just absolutely just too many people, honestly, of famous people he knew and was kind of connected with, Um, but we're just going to start from the beginning of what he's told us his autobiography is. Alrighty, theodore was born
3: in aurora new york in 1822 and he would die in 1909 so he lived a pretty decently long life his father died when he was very young and his mother was very poor and so she would spend time with the quakers just to get by just to get some food and, and be taken care of a little bit and theodore recollects watching the quakers and just seeing how they function and, and that was kind of his his introduction into spirituality, he eventually went to Princeton and became a pastor. And it was pastoring at his church that he met his wife. His wife was visiting, his wife-to-be was visiting from a neighboring town and was just visiting a church that was in the area. And she saw him up there preaching and he saw her down listening and I guess that's all it took because they got married shortly after. They moved to downtown New York
1: and they took on a church that was getting ready to close its doors. And if it seemed like we just went through a whole lot of his life really fast, that's because we did. It, again, his autobiography wasn't really that detailed in these portions and he was the only one writing about himself. Um... We usually, if you're new to the show, we usually have a lot more background that we do on the pastors. You check out some of our other episodes to see how that normally goes. Um, so this church is on its last leg and people were kind of moving out of town. It looked like this was not a place to go, but he um, he really wanted to be useful. He said, I wanted to be somewhere where I knew I could make an impact. And so he jumped in. After a while, revivals take place. This church really gets going and it's back on its feet. He feels great. And in this time, um, another church reaches out to him in a different part of the city uh, where they were needing some help too. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to grow a little bit, um, and they asked him, "Can you be the pastor of our church?" And honestly, Theodore Kyler wasn't really into it that much, but he said, basically, here's here. He thought about, it, he prayed about. It, he said, "Here's what you're gonna do. If you want me to be the best, be the pastor of this church, you've got to buy some land at this t- spot. I'm telling you, and you've got to build me a church that will seat." 2,000 people if you do that for me i'll be your pastor and he expected them to say yeah forget it like what are you talking about that's not going to happen um but 10 days later they came up to him and said here's the deed we bought the land. we're ready to go on the church and that shocked him and he said okay well you did what i asked you to do let's get going
3: It was in the middle of building this church that the American Civil War broke out, and the whole nation comes to a standstill when that happens, and Theodore would ride alongside the Union soldiers, the boys in blue, and preach to them and minister to them. He saw Abraham Lincoln speak on multiple occasions, and when the war ended, he was a huge advocate of putting people's past differences behind them and loving each other in Christ, a big fan of embracing brothers and sisters in christ um regardless of what side you fell on during the war
1: now there's another side of his life which is his personal side you know his family life and he um says that he lost about three children and i read through his autobiography but could only learn about two of them there i know there was a third one um not sure not sure what happened but the first was a son i uh, was a twin boy named georgie and this um The devastating loss of his son at that young of an age, and it was very young, it led him to, I think it was about three or four, led him to writing a book called The Empty Crib. And this actually hit America at a really special time. I don't want to say he was on the bleeding edge, per se, but this was kind of, I don't know if you know much about history, but back in the day, children were not treated the best and during this time after the civil war america started to kind of really reawaken to how do we treat our kids how do we teach them how are we gonna grow the next generation maybe because they just lost so many in the civil war i'm not sure but his book the empty crib just discussing how hard it is to lose a child came out right at the right time and really was a was a kind of a trailblazing book in this area. Nobody had really written about losing a child, and it just it was very important to a lot of people who had lost children. This book meant everything. He would receive thousands of letters of condolences and in fact, um, and empathy. And, and for a while, the grave spot of Georgie would just be visited by parent after parent after parent who just said they could relate. He couldn't even get to the grave spot himself. He said because there were just always other grieving parents who knew what it was like to lose a child. In an era where people weren't really talking about it, he led the way. Later on, um, his daughter at the age of 22, and he said she was full of life, um, she got typhoid and she would also die. And he would write another book and it would receive very similar acknowledgements. It was this big deal. It's very important. Um, I, it, when I was doing research, it was actually psychologists that were talking about this book, book these books more than Christians. Um, it's something... We talk about a lot on the show, but it's amazing how many of these pastors just have been through incredible suffering. Especially, I think many of us think, man, the worst thing that can happen to you is losing your children. Yet, so many of the people on Revived Thoughts have been through that. But the fact that he wrote books and was open to the world like that—it just it made a difference.
3: Another big part of Theodore's life was being a part of the Temperance movement and. If you're not American, you may not know a whole lot about the American temperance movement, but it was in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, and it was basically this movement to try to do away with alcohol. Many people saw it as the source of all kinds of problems and believed that society would be more moral and better without it, essentially. And this actually led to a period of time in the early 1900s called Prohibition, where alcohol was criminalized it was illegal and that obviously didn't last uh alcohol is still very legal in america to this day but for a short period of time during this era the anti-alcohol movement in america had a pretty successful push and theodore was one of its biggest proponents he was preaching he
1: was fighting for it he
3: was doing everything
1: he could for it now at the top of the show we promised you a list of his friends and we will give you that ridiculously long list after the break
0: Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. All right, so because he spent time
1: in the United Kingdom and in one of the main cities of America, New York, as a pastor of a big church, he ended up having a pretty Incredibly, you know, this is who's who, especially of Christian names back in the day. Uh, You may not recognize all of them. Someone else might recognize names that you're not recognizing. It's okay. We're just going to kind of read through this list. This isn't even all of them. This is just ones that I thought were particularly outstanding. Back in the day, I'm sure he knew people that none of us still know. Again, this is autobiography. This is who it is. And I guess there is that. He's the only person whose word we have for this is his, but we're just going to go for it. Um, Starting with Horatius Benar. Uh, Samuel Hansen Cox, Phillips Brooks, Horace Horace Bushnell, Horace Greeley, James McCosh, Gilbert Haven, Joseph Addison Alexander, uh, Albert Barnes, William E. Dodge, Newman Hall, Richard Salter Stores, Philip Schaff, Stephen H. Tying, Joseph Parker, Charles Spurgeon, Benjamin M. Palmer, D.L. Moody, Charles G. Finney, President Benjamin Harris, Vice President Henry Wilson, and Prime Minister William Gladstone, to name a few, this guy knew all these people, did all this traveling. It's very strange to me that the only person who can talk about him is himself, the autobiography, but this is what we know. Um, but as we said in our episode on D.L. Moody, what man has forgotten, God hasn't. We may, we may not remember all the work he put in for God in New York. We may not know, the history books may not have kept a, a detailed record of the deeds of Theodore Kyler, but God did and in this sermon, he talks about the value of human life, and it's this is really, it's this, this amazing description. It really goes into detail of just how important it is that we are humans and alive right now. How, and I really was honestly moved deeply by this, because when you think about how important and precious this moment of time God has given you is, how few people still have that life, honestly, it makes you grateful to be alive, and it suddenly makes you realize, I am here for a purpose, and I need to spend that time that I have well.
2: God made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. Job 33 verse 4. There are two conflicting theories nowadays as to the origin of man. One theory brings him upward from the brute, the other downward from God. One gives him an ascent from the ape, the other a descent from the Almighty. I will waste no time in refuting the first theory. The most profound physicist of Europe Professor Verkau of Berlin has lately asserted that this theory of man's evolution from the brute has no solid scientific foundation. Why should you and I seek to disprove what no man has ever yet proved or will prove? The other theory of man's origin comes down to us in the oldest book in existence, the book of Job, and tallies exactly with the narrative in the next oldest books, those compiled by Moses. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. That is the Bible account of your ancestry and mine. We make a great deal of ancestry. The son of a duke may become a duke, the child of a king has royal blood in his veins, and a vast deal of honor is supposed to descend with an honorable descent. If we grant this true, it proves a great deal. It proves more than some of us imagine. It proves that there is something grander Than for man to have for his sire a king or an emperor, a statesman or a conqueror, a poet or a philosopher. It looks to the grandest genealogy in the universe, the ancestry of a whole race, not a few favored individuals, but all humanity. My brethren, fellow sharers of immortality, open this family record. Trace your ancestry back to the most august parentage in the universe One is our father, God. One, our elder brother, Jesus. We all draw lineage from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Herein consists the value and dignity of human life. I go back to the origin of the globe. I find that for five days the creative hand of the Almighty is busy in fitting up an abode of palatial splendor. He adorns it. He hollows the seas for man's highway, rears the mountains for his observatories, stores the mines for his magazines, pours the streams to give him drink, and fertilizes the fields to give him daily bread. The mansion is carpeted with lush greenery, illuminated with a greater light by day, lesser lights by night. Then God comes up to the grandest work of all. When the earth is to be fashioned and the ocean to be poured into its bed, God simply says, Let them be, and they are. When man is to be created, the Godhead seems to make a solemn pause, retires into the recesses of his own tranquillity, looks for a model, and finds it in himself. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him. Male and female created them. So God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. No longer a beautiful model, no longer a speechless statue, but vivified. Life, that subtle, mysterious thing that no physicist can define, whose lurking place in the body no medical eye has yet found out. Life came into the clay structure He began to breathe, to walk, to think, to feel in the body, the nefesh. The word in the Hebrew means, in the first place, the breath of life. Then, finally, by that immortal essence called the soul. Now it is not my intention to enter into any analysis of this expression, the spirit, but talk to you on life, its reach and its revenue, its preciousness and its power, its rewards and its retributions, life for this world and the far-reaching world beyond. Life is God's gift, your trust and mine. We are the trustees of the giver, from whom at last we will render account for every thought, word, and deed in the body. In the first place, life in its origin is infinitely important. The birth of a babe is a mighty event. From the frequency of births as well as the frequency of deaths, we are prone to set a very low estimate on the ushering into existence of an animate child. Unless the child is born in a palace or a presidential mansion or some other lofty station, unless there be something extraordinary in the circumstances, we do not attach the importance we should to the event itself. It is only notable, noble birth, distinguished birth, that is chronicled in the journals or announced with the sound of artillery. I admit that the relations of a prince, of a president, and statesman are more important to their fellow men and touch them at more points than those of an obscure pauper. But when the events are weighed in the scales of eternity, the difference is scarcely perceptible. In the darkest hovel in Brooklyn, in the dingiest attic or cellar, or any place in which a human being sees the first glimpse of light, the eye of the omniscient beholds an occurrence of the profound. A life is begun, a life that will never end. A heart begins to throb that will beat to the keenest delight or the acutest anguish. More than this, A soul commences a career that will outlast the earth on which it moves. The soul enters upon an existence that will be untouched by time, when the sun is extinguished like a taper in the sky, the moon blotted out, and the heavens have been rolled together as a vesture and changed forever. The Scandinavians have a very impressive allegory of human life. They represent it as a tree, the Yggdrasil, or the tree of existence whose roots grow deep down into the soil of mystery. The trunk reaches above the clouds, its branches spread out over the globe. At the foot of it sit the past, the present, and the future, watering the roots. Its bows, with their unleafing, spread out through all lands and all time. Every leaf of the tree is a biography. Every fiber a word, a thought, or a deed. Its bows are the histories of nations. The rustle of it is the noise of human existence, onward from of old it grows. Amid the howling of the hurricane, it is the great tree of humanity. Now in that conception of the unbelieving Norsemen, we learn how they estimated the grandeur of human life. It is transcendent, a momentous thing, this living, bare living, thinking feeling, deciding, life comes from God. He is its author. It should rise toward God, its giver, who is alone worthy of being served, that with God it may live forever. In the next place, human life is transcendently precious from the services it may render to God in the advancement of His glory. Man was not created as a piece of guesswork flung into existence as a waif. There's a purpose in the creation of every human being, God did not breathe the breath of life into you, my friend, that you might be a sensuous or a splendid animal. That soul was given to you for a purpose worthy of yourself, still more of the creator. What is the purpose of life? Is it advancement? Is it promotion? Is it merely the pursuit of happiness? Man was created to be happy, but to be more, to be holy. The wisdom of those Westminster fathers that gathered in the Jerusalem chamber summarized it into the well-known phrase, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the double aim of life. Duty first, then happiness as the consequence. To bring in revenues of honor to God, to build up His kingdom, spread His truth, to bring this whole world of His and lay it subject at the feet of the Son of God. That is is the highest end and aim of existence and every one here that has risen up to that purpose of life lives he does not merely vegetate he does not exist as a higher type of animal he lives a man's life on earth and when he dies he takes a man's life up to mingle with the higher life of paradise the highest style of manhood and womanhood is to be attained by consecration to the son of god that is the only right way, my friends, to employ these powers which you have brought back to your homes from your sanctuary. That is the only idea of life which you are to take tomorrow into the toils and temptations of the weak. That is the only idea of life that you are to carry to God in your confessions and thanksgivings in the closet. That is the only idea of life on which you are to let the transcendent light of eternity fall. These powers, these gifts, the wealth earned, the influence imparted, All are to be laid at the feet of him who gave his life for you. Life is real, momentous, clothed with an awful and an overwhelming responsibility to its possessor. No, I believe that life is the richest of boons, or the most intolerable of curses. Setting before you the power of a well-spent life, I might of course point first to the radiant pathway that extended from Bethlehem's manger to the cross of Calvary. All along that path I read the single purpose of love all-embracing and undying. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Next to that life, we place the life begun on the road to Damascus. In him Christ lived again, with wondrous power, present in the utterances and footsteps of the servant. For me to live is Christ. That is the master passion of Paul." Whether he ate or drank, gained or lost, created or suffered, Christ filled the eye and animated every step. The chief end of Paul was to glorify his Savior, and of the winding up of that many-sided term of existence, he could exclaim, not boastfully, but gladly, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness." I found myself lately studying with intense interest the biography of Baxter. For half a century that man gave himself to the service of Jesus with a perseverance and industry that shames such loiterers as you and I. Just think of a man that twice on every Lord's Day proclaimed the gospel of his master with most elaborate care and unflinching diligence. On the first two days of the week, spent seven hours each day in instructing children of the parish, not omitting a single one, on account of poverty or obscurity. Think of him devoting one whole day each week to care for their bodily welfare, devoting three days to study, during which he prepared 160 instructive volumes, saturated with the spirit of the word, among them that immortal saint's everlasting rest that has guided so many a believer up to glory. The influence of one such life as that changed the whole aspect of the town of Kidderminster. When he came to it, it swarmed with ignorance, bribery, Sabbath-breaking, vice. When he left it, the whole community had become sober and industrious and a large portion converted and godly. He says, quote, on the Lord's Day evening, you may hear hundreds of families in their doors singing psalms or reading the Bible as you pass along the streets, Sixteen hundred sat down at one time to his communion table, nearly every house "'became a house of prayer. "'Such was one life, "'the life of a man who most of the time "'was an invalid, "'crying out to God for deliverance "'from the most excruciating bodily pains. "'Such was one life on which was stamped "'Holiness to Jesus, "'and out of which flowed the continual efflux "'of Christian power and compassion. "'Such a man never dies. "'Good men live forever.' Old Augustine lives today in the rich discourses inspired by his teachings. Lord Bacon lives in the ever-widening circles of engines, telegraph, and telephones, which he taught men how to invent. Elizabeth Fry lives in the prison reformers, following her radiant and beneficial footsteps. Bunyan lies in Bunhill fields, but his bright spirit walks on the earth in the pilgrim's progress. Calvin sleeps at Geneva, and no man knows his tomb to this day, but his magnificent vindication of God's sovereignty will live forever. We hail him as, in one sense, an ancestor of our republic. Wesley slumbers beside the city road chapel. His dead hand rings 10,000 Methodist church bells round the globe. Isaac Watts is dead, but in the chariot of his hymns, tens of thousands spirits ascend today in majestic devotion." Howard still keeps prisons clean. Franklin protects our dwellings from lightnings. Dr. Duncan guards the earnings of the poor in the savings bank. For a hundred years, Robert Rakes has gathered his Sunday schools all over Christendom, and Abraham Lincoln's breath still breathes through the life of the nation to which, under God, he gave a new birth of freedom. The heart of a good man or a good woman never dies. Why, it is infamy to die and not be missed. Live immortal friends. Live as the brother of Jesus. Live as a fellow workman with Christ in God's work. Phillips Brooks once said to his people, I exhort you to pray for fullness of life, full red blood in the body, full and honest truth in the mind, fullness of consecrated love to the dying Savior in the heart. In the next place, life is infinitely valuable not only from the dignity of its origin and the results and revenues it may reach, but from the eternal consequences flowing from it. This world, with its curtaining of light, its embroideries of the heavens, and its carpeting of greenery, is a solemn vestibule to eternity. My hearer, this world on which you exhibit your nature this morning is the porch of heaven or the gateway of hell. Here you may be laying up treasures through Christ and for Christ to make you a millionaire to all eternity. Here, by simply refusing to obey, by rejecting the cross, by grieving the Spirit, you may kindle a flame that will consume and give birth to a worm of remorse that will prey on your soul forever and ever. In this brief 20 years, 30 or 40, you must, without mistake, settle a question the question of which will lift you to the indescribable heights of rapture or plunge you into the depths of darkness and despair. I am a baby at the thought of the word eternity. I have racked this brain of mine in its poverty and its weakness and have not the faintest conception of it, any more than I have of the omnipresence of Jehovah, yet one is as real as the other, and you and I will go on, in the continuation of an existence that outnumbers the years as the Atlantic drops outnumber the drops of a brook, an existence whose ages are more than the stars that twinkled last night in the firmament, an existence interminable, yet all swinging on the pivot of that life in that pew. It is overpowering. How momentous then is life, how grand its possession, what responsibility in its very breath, what a crime to waste it, what a glory to consecrate it, what a magnificent outcome when it all will shuffle off the coil and break itself free from its entanglements and burst into the presence of its giver and rise into all the transcendental glories of its everlasting life. In view of that, What a solemn thing it is to preach God's word and to stand between the living and the dead. And in view of life, its preciousness and power, its far-reaching rewards and punishments, let me say here, in closing, that there are three or four practical considerations that should be pressed home upon us and carried out by us. The first practical thought is how careful you and I ought to be to husband it. The neglect of life is a sin. It is an insult to God. It is tampering with the most precious trust he bestows. The care of life is a religious duty. A great deal of your happiness depends on it. And I can tell you, my Christian brother, a great deal of your spiritual growth and capacity for usefulness depends on the manner in which you treat this marvelous mechanism of the body. Your religious life is affected by the condition of the body in which the spirit resides. It is not only lying lips. It is the willful crank that is an abomination to the Lord. Anyone that recklessly impairs, imperils, and weakens bodily powers by bad hours, unwholesome diet, poisonous stimulants, or sensualities is a suicide. And there are some men, I'm afraid, in this congregation that yield themselves such unpitied bond slaves to the claims of business that they are shortening life by years and impairing its powers every day. Thousands of suicides are committed every year in Brooklyn by a defiance of the simplest laws of self-preservation and health. What will we say of him who opens a haunt of temptation, sets out his snares, and deliberately deals out death by the drink? So many pieces of silver for so many ounces of blood, and an immortal soul tossed into the balance. If I could let one ray of eternity shine into every bar, I think I could frighten the poison seller back from making his living at the mouth of the pit." Again, in this view of the value of life, what a stupendous crime wanton war becomes. Offensive war. Such war as multitudes have dashed into from the lust of conquest or the greed of gold. When war is to be welcomed, rather than a nation should commit suicide and the hopes of men perish, then with prayers and self-consecration may the patriot go out to the battle and the sacrifice. But offensive war is a monster of hell. With all our admiration for Napoleon's brilliant and unsurpassed genius, there are passages in his life that make my blood sometimes tingle to the finger ends and start the involuntary hiss at the very thought of such a gigantic butcher of his fellow creatures. If that man knew that a battery could be carried only at the cost of a legion of men, he never hesitated to order their sacrifice as lightly as he would the life of a gnat. I read that after what is called his splendid victory at Austerlitz was over and the triumph was won and the iron crown of empire was fixed on his brow as he stood on the high ground and he saw a portion of the defeated Russians making a slow, painful retreat over a frozen lake. They were in his power. He rode up to a battery and said, men, you are losing time. Fire on those masses. They must be swallowed up. Fire on that ice. The order was executed. Shells were thrown and went crashing through the battle bridge of ice, and amid awful shrieks, hundreds upon thousands of poor wretches were buried in the frozen waters of that lake. I believe the dying shrieks of his fellow creatures will haunt the eternity of a man who prostituted the most magnificent powers the Creator fashioned in this our century of time, to the awful work of shortening life, tormenting his fellow creatures, and sending a million unbidden before God. Once more I emphasize upon you, my beloved people, life, its preciousness and power, its rewards and its retributions. And yet what a vapor, what a flight of an arrow, what a tale that is told, short yet infinite in its reach and its retribution. When life is represented as an arrow flight and a vapor, it is not that it may be underrated in its infinite importance, but only that we may be pushed up to the right sense of its brevity, Everything in God's world ennobles humanity and exhibits life as earnest, solemn, decisive, momentous. The highest ends are proposed to it while it exists. The most magnificent rewards are held out at the termination of its consecrated vitalities. At the end of it is the great white throne and the decisions of the judgment. Some of you turning from this discourse this morning, may say it was nothing but sacred poetry, because your life is only the steady, monotonous round of a mill horse, tomorrow across the ferry, home at night, through its routine in the shop, in the counting room, in the family, on the Sabbath in church, and say, I see nothing in my life that so sparkles or shines or has this sublime characteristic. (laughs) My friend, grant that your life may be the mill round of the mill horse. You... Turn a shaft that reaches through the wall into eternity, and the humblest life in this house sets in motion revolving wheels that will at last grind out for God's garner the precious grain, or else the worthless chaff of a wasted existence. So again I say, life is the porch of eternity, the only one we will ever have, and you are to decide now whether it will be the uplift from strength to strength, from glory to glory, or the plunge downward, and still downward, and deeper downward, to darkness and eternal death. My friend, what sort of life are you living? A really earnest, humble consecration to God? Go on. Live as I mean to do, as long as God will spare power and intellectual faculty to serve Him. Live as long as you can, as largely as you can and then carry all life's accumulation and lay it down at the feet of him whose heart broke for you and me on the cross of Calvary, and say, Master, here I am, and the life you have given me.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Matt. Matthew is the husband of one wife and father of four kids. He's a former Marine who works in IT support in the Air Force. He also moonlights as an amateur voiceover artist. He came to Saving Faith in Christ in 2010 and has since had a passion for defending the faith, discipling others, and participating in the kingdom work that God has called him to. Feel free to check out our website at ReviveThoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for today's
1: episode and all of our episodes. Thank you so much for all the different ways people have shared and loved on the show. Sharing it with friends, letting others know, posting about it. All of that is a great way to help us. If you would like to help us in another way, you can donate to us on Patreon. Um, A little bit of money really does help. Again, you may not know this about Joel and I. We try to put on a pretty good production here, but we only have one microphone that we just pass between the two of us. We'd love to. Too. that's one thing we're really working on trying to get our uh, patreon supporters to maybe uh encourage and help us out we're really grateful for those of you who do and uh those of you who would like to help us in that we would be extremely grateful for that this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts
0: This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.